Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Michelle Murphy, Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conference and seminar presentations, where you can hear from people like Carrie Exton, Tony Fahey and Gabriel McClough. In our 10-minute lesson series, we give a brief overview of a policy topic This is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And our interview series, where we have a chat with experts on a range of policy areas. This is one of those. And today I'm joined by Dr. Anthony Soares, Director of the Centre for Cross-Border Studies, to talk about the work of the Centre for Cross-Border Studies and how it is influenced and framed by the Good Friday Agreement. So, Anthony, you are very welcome to our podcast series. Thank you very much, Michelle. I'm I'm really pleased to to be with you. Great. Well, first, Anthony, could you just tell us about the history of the Centre for Cross-Border Studies, how the centre was established and and the type of work that you and your colleagues do? Yeah, so the centre was established in September 1999. So it really is a child of, of the Good Friday Agreement. It was set up in the aftermath of that agreement and it was specifically uh, established in order to support principally strand two of the Good Friday Agreement, so north-south cooperation, um, but cross-border cooperation m- more generally, looking at the experiences of cross-border cooperation on the island of Ireland and sharing those experiences with others. Um, so that's why it was established, to really promote that that cross-border cooperation, that north-south cooperation. And when it was established, it, there was kind of three organizations that, that supported the, the creation or the setting up of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, sorry, of the, of the Center for Cross Border Studies. And I have to say here that really the founding director of the Center for Cross Border Studies, Andy Pollock, a former Irish Times journalist, he was really the inspiration for the creation of the center. But behind it then were there were three organizations that kind of supported its establishment. So two of those were universities, so Queen's University Belfast and Dublin City University. And a third organization, unfortunately, no longer in existence, which was the Workers Educational Association. Um, so, so that they were kind of linked to the establishment of the center, but the center is completely independent from from any other any organization it's 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 an independent kind of think and do tank i I would say and doing everything to support promote and advocate for improved cross-border cooperation principally on the island of ireland but also between the island of ireland and great britain and also working at kind of a european level so we also work with partners across across europe I like your description, Anthony, as a think and do thank, which I think, you know, is really important. Um, you know, today, when we look at the impact that policies have on people's lives, and I suppose one thing that struck me when, you know, reading some of your work and your your annual, annual publications is um, the, the role that the centre has in contributing to the increased social, economic and territorial cohesion on the island of Ireland. Um, and could you kind of tell us how you the do element of this of your work because obviously you do a lot of the thinking we've seen your research papers I suppose it's a common charter the ad hoc group does your quarterly surveys now which are you know really useful and really interesting but 
what what is the do element of the Centre for Cross Border Studies when it comes to this social, economic, and territorial cohesion? And um, how how does your work sort of contribute to, I suppose, the the cross border and the cross community element of that? Yeah. So before we get to the do bits, I mean, at the centre of everything that we do um, in our organisation, there's research, there's analysis, there's looking at at policies being developed whether it's in an in, instalment in when that's functioning, whether that's policy coming out from Dublin, whether that's policy coming out from London, sometimes policy coming out from Edinburgh or Cardiff, and also policy coming out from, from, from Brussels, looking at how those, those new policies, those new laws might impact on cross-border cooperation, how it might become obstacles to or actually provide uh, opportunities for for greater cross-border cooperation so there's always research at, at the heart of everything that we do but the do bit is so for example you mentioned there the quarterly surveys that we've been doing since the first quarter of 2021 so th those surveys are are aimed at local authorities and civic society organizations on the island of Ireland and the reason that we started doing those surveys was as the, the kind of Brexit transition period ended and the, the, the protocol on Ireland, Northern Ireland, or now known as the Windsor Framework, came into operation, what we, were, what we wanted to, to, to kind of track was how were civil society organisations and local authorities on the island of Ireland experiencing their cooperation with organisations in the other jurisdiction on the island of Ireland, but also their cooperation, their relations with, with counterparts in Scotland, England and Wales. We just wanted to monitor what was going on. Um, and, and as I said, we've been doing that since the first quarter of 2021. But the do bit is, it's not just about kind of taking in the information, seeing what, what, are, what are the challenges that organisations are facing, what are the new challenges that they are facing in this new kind of post-Brexit context. But it's then taking those issues that are coming up um, that are kind of appearing as issues that are being experienced by a number of organisations and taking that, that, that then to, to those who are responsible for the implementation of the protocol. So we would, we would take that information, share it with other organisations, and then through, for example, the ad hoc group for North, South and East West Cooperation, which we convene, we would then ask for meetings and have meet, meetings with the, 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 the co-chairs of the specialised committee on the protocol. So that's the UK government side and the European Commission side. We've had meetings with the, the joint committee of the withdrawal agreement. Um, we've had meetings with separately with officials from both the UK government, Irish government, but, but the Euro European Commission as well, to so try and work through those issues. So that's the do bit. It's not just analysing and looking at data coming in. It's then seeking to find solutions to those challenges that people are facing in terms of their north, south and or east, west cooperation. So that's the do bit as well. Uh, and maybe another example is, so when um, the UK voted to leave the EU and the negotiations began, one of the phrases that started being repeated all the time and actually a phrase that then became part of the official kind of the withdrawal agreement was this phrase about uh, that Brexit should not undermine the Good Friday Agreement 
in all its parts. But we quickly realized it in conversations that we would be having with, with officials, with, with elected representatives, especially in Westminster, and with officials in the European Commission, there's that phrase, the Good Friday Agreement in all its parts, but we weren't necessarily convinced that people actually knew what all of the parts of the Good Friday Agreement were. So we were kind of concerned, how could you not undermine something in all its parts if you don't actually understand what all the parts of the Good Friday Agreement are? So we then decided what we were going to do was kind of do kind of a communication exercise and try and get people to understand what all the parts of the Good Friday Agreement are and how they are actually interconnected. Um, so, so that's a bit of the do bit. So it's not a lot, always research at the heart of what we do, but then we use that research to kind of go out and advocate for find solutions to challenges for cross-border cooperation. Well, I suppose that's, that's the really interesting piece, answering the two examples there. So what about obviously gathering the data, analyzing it to provide the research, but then how, you know, it's really interesting to hear how the quarterly surveys are then used to, I suppose, inform policy, you know, with the UK government here with the Irish government and with European Commission officials as, you know, they try to make the protocol and now potentially the Windsor framework actionable. And I suppose to make it as, as seamless as possible for communities, for businesses, for society on the island of Ireland. And it's very interesting, Anthony, that you say that then, because it leads me into my next question. My next question is, how has the work of the Centre for Cross-Border Study evolved since it was established in 1999? And yet it also seems, almost seems to have come full circle that you almost had to engage on an educational campaign as to what exactly the three strands of the Good Friday Agreement are and what all the component parts are, you know, from 2020, as I suppose the withdrawal was being negotiated, and to to re-inform people who might have forgotten over the past 25 years, one, you know, the basis of the Good Friday Agreement, and number two, what's actually in it. So was that, I suppose, you know, when you sit back and reflect on that and the work of the centre, is it almost like you've, you've come full circle you went from the beginning I suppose in terms of how do you develop cross-border cooperation cross-community cooperation community development social and economic cohesion north-south and east-west cooperation and then you get to the point where you're almost informing people why this has to be done and how you might do it well yeah in a certain sense I would agree although the Good Friday Agreement is, is at the heart of everything we do, always has been, and hopefully always will be. But it seems to, in terms of cross-border cooperation, it seems to go in cycles. There's there's um, a few years of, of a very positive mood, but then we kind of run into challenges, normally political challenges, where the political context isn't necessarily the best. Uh, some disengagement, let's say, from sometimes the UK and Irish governments at, at certain points where perhaps they believe, look, things are OK, um, we can take the foot off the pedal here. Uh, and that kind of doesn't provide the most positive context necessarily always for, for, for especially North-South cooperation, but also East-West East -West cooperation. And that bit about going back, let's say, to the beginning again and going back to the, the Good Friday agreement to, to us look just to give you a very uh, an example um 
back in 2018, this is almost going back into ancient history, when at that point the UK government's been led by Theresa May and she was going through her negotiations with, with the, the, the EU and there was a draft withdrawal agreement at that point. And there was all these discussions about where border posts were going to be. Now, now to us, the Good Friday Agreement, it's, it kind of represents the totality of relations within and across these islands. And to us, one of the things that we said at that point was that if you're discussing where to put border posts or, or, or controlling borders, that means you are undermining the Good Friday Agreement. As soon as you start discussing where we're going to put these border posts, the, the, where are we going to control the movement of goods uh, within or across these islands, you are undermining the Good Friday Agreement. However, we also said at that point that we understood why this discussion was taking place because it was the, the kind of the 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 the, the type of, of Brexit that the UK government wanted to pursue. Uh, that kind of led us to the situation um, in, in which we were discussing where we were going to put the, the these border posts. Um, so it was a kind of going back and trying to re-explain, re-emphasize what the Good Friday Agreement actually means in terms of, and it's not just about the movement of goods. I know during all of these Brexit negotiations, the focus has been continually on goods, the, the, the movement of goods, controlling that, that movement of goods. But to us, the Good Friday Agreement is also about people. It's about relations between communities within and across jurisdictions on on these islands, and if we, if you forget those relations, then you really are going to start to run into trouble. You can have the most perfect movement of goods, but if communities aren't relating in the way that they had or, or should be, then you start to run into trouble. So that's one of the things that we we're trying to trying to kind of stress, um, and, and we, we continue to stress, is that the importance of the movement of people within and across these islands, the movement of ideas, um, the, the connections, those relations that exist between organisations and, and, and individuals. And just to give you, going back to one very specific example again, um, again, going back to this, you know, think and do uh, rather than just think. Um, one of the issues that, that kind of came up recently, although, well, fairly recently, was legislation that went through in Westminster, uh, the Borders and Nationalities Bill, which is now an act, and within that, the introduction of this new scheme, the Electronic Travel Authorization Screen uh, Scheme, which uh, just to, not to go into too much detail, but it's just this new scheme whereby um, certain individuals now, in order to enter the UK, have to apply online for permission to enter the UK. This Electronic Travel Authorization, which sounds you know, reasonable, it's a bit like the US system, but it kind of forgets that there is a land border uh, here on the island of Ireland and that many people cross this border all the time. And, and, and a certain group of people were now, as that legislation went through, uh, were being asked to apply for electronic travel authorization in order to cross from the Republic of Ireland into, into Northern Ireland, which would kind of really disturb that kind of cross-border living that, that we're used to. So that's one of the things that we and others campaigned on. We lobbied in terms of at least in the first instance to um, 
give an exemption to those who are legally resident in the Republic of Ireland from having to apply for, for this electronic travel authorization. And I'm glad to say that is something that has now now happened. So it, it, it's that going back to principles, emphasizing the importance of, of relations between between people, between communities across and between these islands and maintaining those re relations and that ability to, to move cross-border. And I think that example you gave, Anthony, is I suppose it epitomizes how sometimes, as you say, communities and people are forgotten because the focus is primarily on trade and the movement of goods. But when we look at the island and almost the people forget there's a common travel area. And if you just look at the, you know, the, the amount of cross-border that tra travel that takes place every day when people from the Republic go to work in the north and maybe people from the north go to work, you know, it's just a it's part of life here, but it's almost like those people and communities have, have almost been forgotten, which brings me to, I suppose, how you and your organization try to, you know, look at the how you make sure that the realities on the ground and the reality for communities and people is heard and reflected, you know, in the sort of cooperation north south east west so you might because what i find really interesting is your your new common charter for cooperation within and between the islands which is so the aims to empower civic society and civil society organizations to drive this cooperation so could you just expand more on that and why you set up the new common charter in the first place and i suppose what it aims to do and how it read you know how it brings realities on the ground into policy making yeah michelle that that, that that to us the new common charter for cooperation within and between these islands um one of the things to emphasize is that new common charter that that is the product of other organizations we we were just kind of there in the background managing this process a long long process um where organizations initially from and a whole range of organizations from north and south on the island of Ireland came together uh, to really voice what they viewed as the positives of, of cooperation within and across these islands, um, why they thought it was important. Um, but one of the things that they also did, and we as an organisation haven't even thought about this. So the, the, the text, when it was eventually agreed, and I'll come back to, to that kind of long process, but the text, when it was eventually agreed, it actually has an, an introduction at the beginning, and the groups were very, um, really wanted this introduction to be in there. That, that, and as an introduction reminding us of just the simple facts that cross-border cooperation doesn't fall out of the sky. It, it kind of... It comes about because there's already all sorts of relations happening. So they wanted an, an introduction that reminds people that we on these islands have friends, have family living in other parts of these islands, uh, that there's, there's sporting traditions across these islands, that there's cultural traditions that span this island, there are languages that span the, these islands, there are faiths that span these islands. So there's a whole context already there, and the groups were... were really stressed how important that was to them to, to, to remind people of what those existing relations are, those the relations that have been going on for, for years, for decades, for centuries, uh, and to remind us of that context. And just to, to go back to this process, it was a long process. That that new common charter, the, the kind of the, the background work started in 2014, 
And then the work with organizations began in 2015. And the kind of the final draft of that new common charter for cooperation came about in 2019. So that was a long, long process, but it was deliberately long because because of the nature, the, the, the varied nature of the organizations that were involved. People have different perceptions, different approaches of cross-border cooperation and what it means. So there was some difficult conversations that had to be had in order for us to be able to, to, to gain an understanding of where different groups were coming from and then to, to come to this consensus around what they wanted to be in this new common charter. And it was a draft initially because although it was organizations on the island of Ireland who were initially behind the drafting of this new common charter, we then took it to, or they took it, uh, and this is important to emphasize, it's not the Center for Cross Border Studies, the studies. We were there to support organizations in, in coming up with this new common chart. It was then taken to Scotland, England, and Wales. And, and the conversations then happened in those places, in Scotland, England, England, and in Wales, around this draft new common charter. So uh, it, it kind of then it initiated different debates. Uh, so for example, um, when we went to Scotland initially, there was um, a, co a conversation about human rights and the kind of different perspective that, that in Scotland, that civil society, society organisations, the kind of language that they use around human rights is different perhaps to what we're used to, particularly in Northern Ireland. When we hit Wales, it was the, the issue of language itself and how in Wales they really stressed the importance of the Welsh language and, 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 wanted, and wanted to stress the importance of the Welsh language to organisations coming over, over from the island of Ireland and how they perceive uh, language as, as an important factor for them. And then when we were in, in England and we were in the, in the north of England, it was in that em emphasis around um, support for those who are migrant communities so different conversations happening in different places uh, in, in, in Great Britain. And then all of those organizations coming together finally in Belfast in 2019 to kind of agree this final, final version of the of the new Common Charter. And in terms of its purpose, it really is a reminder. It, it serves as a reminder of why civic society organizations value cross-border cooperation, why they value it. And it has at the end of it a, a kind of some, some suggestions around areas where civil society organizations think that they collaborate on a north, south and or an east, west basis on certain issues like rural development is one of them. Gender budgeting is, an, is another one. So a whole host of, of issues that they think should be worked on on a, on a north, south and east, west basis. Um, so it's why it's valued what its purpose is, a kind of a reminder. And, and I have to say, we began the work, the work on the ground in 2015. The draft or the final draft is done in 2019. Obviously, within that period, 2015 to 2019, Brexit happens. The referendum happens in 2016. And it was really, really um, important to us that we had these discussions. I remember working with organisations during that period, 2016, and people were discussing, we're here, here we are talking about cooperation, and, and now Brexit is happening. What does that mean? But all the groups then quickly came to realise the reason that they were doing this is because cross-border cooperation addresses challenges 
that were there before Brexit. Cross-border cooperation will address challenges as Brexit is happening, and it will address challenges post-Brexit. So Brexit, in some sense, is, is neither here nor there. The importance of cross-border cooperation is, is, is a reality despite Brexit. Um, and and organisations were, were really keen to, to bear that one in mind that Brexit isn't going to upset how they value cross-border cooperation. It might kind of affect how they go about it, but the value of cross-border cooperation, the new common charter kind of states why it is valuable and, and what it's for. And also the debate was about what it should not be about um, as well. So, yeah, a long process, but a really important one and a really valuable uh, kind of initiative at the end of the day that we are still, again, this is this is the think and do bit. The new common chart isn't just sitting there somewhere. It's going out. We're going out with it. it we're, we're, in fact, we're very shortly going. I think it's next 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 month. We're off to Cardiff again and going over to Edinburgh as well. Again, to 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 speak to other organisations to bring them on board and to, and to get them to also kind of um, really make conscious the reality of the value of cross border cooperation. And what you mentioned there, Anthony, the fact that the organisations who came together, the different civil society organisations, were dealing with problems on the ground prior to the referendum, post-Brexit, and will continue to be dealing with those problems, responding to them, providing solutions, supporting communities. I think that really reflects the importance of civil society and civic society in social dialogue, because I think traditionally, both in the Republic, the North and, and across in the United Kingdom, social dialogue has been seen as, I suppose, governments and trade unions and employers. But there is a space there, I think a really important space within social dialogue for that civil society voice for the organizations who are dealing with realities on the ground and responding to them and who have that history and that tradition and who will continue to do so. I, I think it, that's just so important in terms of cooperation. And I suppose it brings me to my next, I suppose the next question is the ad hoc group and what informs the work of the ad hoc group and you know how you do your your discussions and consultations with that group. What are the issues that are coming up? And I'm really interested in the border proofing element of that. Yeah. So the, the ad hoc group came about um, initially in 2019. Although I'm going to say formally, it's an informal grouping, um, but it, it kind of really came together then in May 2020, and it, it, it's primary purpose i suppose it, it it brings together again a whole range of different organizations from north and south who are interested in or involved in north south and or east west cooperation and in fact probably almost all of the organizations that are involved in the ad hoc group do both north south and east west cooperation so they can be there's environmental groups there's human rights groups there are women's groups rural development groups uh, youth organizations uh, disability all sorts of different organizations involved in in the ad hoc group and i, I suppose it, its primary concern at the moment is ensuring uh, I'm going to use here a very 
policy phrase, um, but it's taken straight from the protocol on Ireland Northern Ireland, now known as the Windsor Framework, Article 11, which is about maintaining the necessary conditions for North-South cooperation. So as, as a protocol is implemented, as, as we are now in this, this post-Brexit landscape, that the necessary conditions for North-South cooperation are maintained. That's, so, so that's what the group is, is trying to do, principally maintaining those conditions for North-South cooperation, but also East-West cooperation. As I said, most organisations are involved in both North-South and East-West. So um, the, the, the group comes together uh, on, a, on a regular basis, sometimes just internally, as in just the groups themselves, meeting just to discuss what, what are the issues, are they encountering any issues in terms of their North-South and or East-West uh, cooperation activities. Um, so I suppose one of the things that we're grappling with as a group is um, it's not necessarily the reality because it hasn't actually come about yet. It's the potential for the UK to start diverging on all sorts of areas and how that might affect then our ability to cooperate on both a north-south and an east-west basis. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, apart from those internal regular meetings where the group discusses the, the challenges, the issues that, that, that are live for them. It is also then a group that meets with those with, with policy and decision makers who have a role in maintaining those conditions for North, South and East, West cooperation and engaging with them to get them to understand what the issues are. And, and that's it's what you were saying, Michelle. These are organisations who are on the ground. They are doing the North, South and the East, West cooperation bit. So it's trying to, to, to bring the practice together with the theory or the practice together with, with the policy. Um, we are making sure that policy makers and decision makers hear directly from those who are doing North, South and East, West cooperation, because they're the ones that as they're going about their, that work, that cross-border cooperation work, whether it's North, South or East, West, they're the ones that, that encounter the challenges face-to-face uh, they're the ones that kind of start to identify what are the new issues that are coming that are coming up. And then we can then take those directly to, to policymakers, making them aware of those issues and try and find a, a way through um, uh, those particular obstacles to try to, to try and either get rid of them completely or at least minimize their impacts. So so that's basically what the what the ad hoc uh, group is doing. Uh, in terms of maintaining those condi conditions for cooperation. But just, Michelle, just going back to what you're saying about the importance of civic society and that that dialogue, um, I think it's really important. Sometimes I think civic society organisations, and, and, and I'm not saying that we're not guilty of this. We have these relations. We talk to each other all the time. And we work together all the time. Um, civic society, the, the third sector, thrives on collaboration. That's how it. That's how it works. But sometimes I, I, I think we we don't because we do it. We just seem to do it naturally. Um, we just take it take it for granted. And sometimes I think we don't value it ourselves and don't shout out about the value of what we do, that particular, that, those connections, that dialogue that's going on constantly at civic society level. And I think it's really important that we do value it, especially now, for example, as this Windsor framework is now begins to be implemented, that Windsor framework within it 
uh, especially when you, we're talking about the the Northern Ireland part of it, and particularly this this element of the storm of break. There's a whole uh, raft of bits in the legislation that deals that, that that relates to the winter framework that talks about consultation with civic society as as MLAs decide whether they're going to accept or reject new EU legislation. They the by legislation, they now have to consult with civic society. So it's important that we value what our dialogue, our discussion between ourselves, but to make it stronger than when we have to engage the, the, in proper consultation with, with, with decision makers who are going to make decisions that are going to affect our ability, again, I'm coming, coming back to our, our raison there, to our ability to cooperate on a cross-border basis. I think it's interesting that you say that, Anthony, and the, the element of consultation and the, I suppose, the importance now for civil society who has such a huge history and experience of collaboration and cooperation, that deliberative piece, you know, because as you say, there's a whole raft of different organisations within civil society but they have this history this tradition of deliberation collaboration and cooperation you know not everything is going to be perfect and to you know incorporate every single interest of every single group but at the same time they can come together and get behind something and what you said out there I think is really important is to ensure that that consultation is real consultation. It's not It's not just a, a tick box exercise and actually that the views of people, communities and the organizations that represent them and work with them are really taken into account when you're looking at the implementation of policy. Yeah, Michelle, t- just on that, uh, it, it, look, t- 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 to give you a quick description. Um, so obviously during the COVID, period um everything was done online um so sometimes when we'd have me so this is the ad hoc group when the ad hoc group would have meetings with you know um the co-chairs of the specialized committee on the protocol whether it's on the eu side or the uk side sometimes it looked a bit chaotic because it would be two or three from the uk side or the, or the european commission side and and the screen would be filled with about 15 16 different organizations who, who are kind of linked to the ad hoc group but that was a deliberate thing because we the center for cross-border studies we don't want to speak on behalf of others when we can actually bring those others directly into the room to speak to those decision makers so instead of us being the kind of the translators the interpreters kind of you know passing on the message we prefer to have those people sitting there even if it's in a virtual room, but now more likely physically in person, have them in the room so that they can speak directly to, to policymakers. So there's no filter there. It's, it's them speaking directly to the policymakers and having that having that discussion. I think that's that's really really important um, because we need diversity. We need that table, the, 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 these these arenas to have. It can be a bit chaotic, I suppose, but have that diversity, have that range of people that we're not always speaking to the same, the same faces. There has to be a diversity in terms of who is speaking to those policy and decision makers so that they that they can get a, a re- realistic picture of what it's like on the ground. In, again, in our case, for those who are involved in cross-border cooperation. 
And Anthony, before we 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 finish up here, it's a big question, but you know, the, the Center for Cross Border Studies, it's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and you you described the agreement as a, as a stepping stone to a more hopeful future, to a to a new beginning. So I suppose looking to the future, what do you see as the biggest challenges to, but also the biggest opportunities for cross-border cooperation? Well, I think it's, it's two faces of the same coin. I think the biggest challenge is insularity. Um, and here I'm talking specifically in terms of Northern Ireland, that the biggest challenge for cross-border cooperation is that Northern Ireland, especially on the, on the political front, becomes insular, inward-looking, rather than outward looking because that that's that's the enemy of cooperation in, in order to be able to cooperate you have to have at least a level of curiosity in terms of what's happening on the other side of the border if you're looking inwards constantly um looking inwards at your own problems and and trying to find the solution to your problems by just looking inwards that that isn't going to to lead to cooperation and it's not going to lead to to, to very good outcomes so that is is the biggest challenge for us uh, and for cooperation in general is is that potential for northern ireland to start just really become more inward looking and one of the arising from that challenge or or or, or kind of a, a factor in that challenge is if that happens and if northern ireland just becomes more inward looking more insular um and being perceived as from from those on the outside as a kind of a, a problem, then there's going to be greater reluctance from others to cooperate with Northern Ireland. Um, and we have said this explicitly to, 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 to decision makers, to political representatives in, in Northern Ireland, that we want to avoid that challenge because others will forge ahead. Uh, so, you know, we can see that and we've seen that over the recent years that, for example, Scotland, the government in Scotland has been forging ahead in building its relations with the Republic of Ireland. The same has been happening with Wales. The Welsh government is forging ahead in terms of developing its relations with, with the Republic of Ireland. London, you know, we've had some rocky periods recently uh, between London and Dublin, but that those relations are improving. And all of those places will also have improved relations with European counterparts mm -hmm. and with others. And the, the risk there then is just Northern Ireland just becomes isolated and there'll be less and less appetite for people to want to cooperate with Northern Ireland. But the reverse of that is if Northern Ireland really takes the, the opportunities that are there to look outwards, to, 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 to be seen as a positive, and, and Northern Ireland as a contributor, uh, not Northern Ireland, uh, let's say, as as a problem that needs a solution, but Northern Ireland as a provider of solutions to challenges elsewhere. That's where the opportunities lie, is Northern Ireland becoming more outward looking, engaging more, uh, being confident in who who we are, what, what we have to offer and, and engaging with others, whether it's on a north-south basis, east-west basis or further, further afield. So those are where the opportunities are. Anthony, I could discuss this all day, but I just, I really want to thank Dr. Anthony Soares, Director of the Centre of Cross-Border Studies for his time. 
with us today um, for this uh, one of our interview series podcasts. And as always, you can get our podcast on our website, socialjustice.ie, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any ideas for any podcasts, um, topics, just send us an email, secretary at socialjustice.ie.